Welcome to the Stories We Don't Tell, a podcast about storytelling. Well, I guess, should we introduce ourselves or each other? I don't know. I feel like at some point we probably should do that. Uh, I'm Paul. And I am Stefan. That's, that's going to be confusing for people, isn't it? Uh, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. It depends on if they're a long-term listener, uh, first-time caller. Right. If they're first-time caller, then they would, they would not know that we are lying. Yes. Mm, right. It's an issue. But I think that's, I'm okay with that if you are. Yeah, I'm fine with that. All right. What are we talking about today? Uh, so we had an event uh, a few, well, actually, if you've been listening to the podcast or if you've listened to any of the previous episodes of the podcast, you would know that Stories of Home was an event that we just ran as a partnership uh, with the Center for Social Innovation, Evergreen, and uh, now Magazine as a media partner. And it was sort of taking the concept of Stories of Home uh, as a way to engage with National Housing Week and this conversation around housing at home that's sort of expanding into our uh well, I, really, as, 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 as prices rise in the city of Toronto and all across Canada and all across the world, really, uh, it becomes a more and more important conversation, I feel like. And yeah, these were like, p- people came, uh, which is amazing. Thank you if you're coming, if you came and, and are now listening. That's awesome. Uh, if you didn't come and you listen to this podcast to hear the stories, good news. That's what we're doing with this podcast. Yes. And um, so just uh, what we are doing, because you heard from some of these uh, storytellers, uh, we did little interviews with them in this, uh, you know, as we're wrapping up this little mini series. Um, and we wanted to just, you know, let you hear all the stories as well from these people, because I'm sure you're, we're very interested, uh, to hear from them in their interviews and wanted to hear more. So who are we going to hear from? Yeah. Uh, so we're going to hear from four storytellers. Their bios will be in the, uh, in the show post. If you want to go onto our website, stories, we want to tell.org to find that out. Uh, but the sto- four storytellers you're going to hear from today, uh, are, uh, Claire, Helen, he's Boutin, Jesse Thistle, Roz McLean, and Sage Turtle. And, you know, they're, uh, that's, as you'll notice from listening to them, it's a wide range of for perspectives and, and stories coming from all of them. And, uh, also, fun fact: these are the first stories we've actually had on season three. We've uh, we've been sh- we've been stories light. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's okay. But we've been talking about stories, right? And so this one is really is the stories we don't have podcast, the stories podcast. Right. So uh, this is great. So what we're going to do is uh, just a little uh, disclaimer: is that the audio isn't perfect. Uh, but that's okay because what is perfect or what is, uh, you know, the most important part is the content of what these people are saying. So just, um, you know, it's a live show. So there's, you know, a little bit of, uh, audio stuff, but you know, just go with it. Thanks to all the storytellers, really. Uh, you know, this was a kind of an odd ask. We just sort of fired this off into the ether of people, uh, being like, Hey, will you come in front of an audience of people you've never met to talk about, uh, your housing and home and, and, and your thoughts behind it and people really responded and you know they they worked with us and it was it was great you know and uh, I think uh, we also should also thank Michelle German who uh, was our guest co-host the last few um, episodes and uh, also uh, you know was the one that that kind of approached you to uh, put this on, help put this thing together. Yeah, she made it all happen. So thank you very much, Michelle. Amazing. Well, uh, we don't won't keep you waiting for these stories then. Uh, so let's just throw it to the stories. Take it away. I don't know if you've heard me on CBC. Um, 
um, unreserved before. Uh, Rosanna Deerchild said, says I'm a storyteller. So for me as an indigenous person, that's like the highest regard that we can earn in our culture. So I like to call myself a storyteller and I guess you'll be the judge at the end of it, right? So to set the stage, uh, I do have lived experience. I've been home, I was homeless here in Toronto and Branton, Ottawa. I was kind of a hitchhiking vagabond when I was young, addicted uh, to drugs. And this is a story about a time in my life when I didn't know where my home was. And now I know that home is where I can take my shoes off and put beside my bed. So I hope you enjoy the story. It's called King Abdi, the King of Somalia. Good night, Abdi, you crusty old bastard, I said as I rested my head on my pillow. Abdi was my buddy who'd always sleep in the bed next to me at the homeless shelter. I always liked joking with Abdi to get him going, and he always did the same with me. It was our only form of entertainment in this hospitable yet horrible place. Hey, I've been meaning to ask you, I said. Remember when you were said you were the king of Somalia? Well, is it true? My question was a direct attack on Abdi's royal pedigree and was sure to get a reaction. As expected, his face became flushed with anger and his eyes bulged out of his head. Would I lie, peasant? <laughs> of course I'm the king of Somalia. How dare you question my royal blood? Abdi was a, a Somali man of around 65 and I, of course, knew he wasn't Somali royalty. Life had not been good to him. From what I knew of him, he fled Somalia with his family when the country broke out in civil war in the early 90s. Soon after, he developed into an alcoholic, and his wife met another man and left him. Abdi would reminisce of his homeland, telling me of how, of, telling me of how he, every night he used to mass, uh, sorry, he used to shepherd massive herds of cattle on foot between Kenya and Somalia, and how he'd sit every night watching the orange-red African sunset. It was something he had done since boyhood, and by the way his eyes lit up whenever he talked about it, I could see it was something he loved and missed very dearly. I tried to imagine how hard it must have been for him to be forced out of his life by the perpetual civil strife of his beautiful homeland, only to end up in a homeless shelter in a foreign country that seemingly didn't want him or his alcohol problem. Hey, Thistle, King Abdi said as he leaned forward with an intense look on his face. You know how I know you're a real streeter like me? The sour booth smell on his breath demanded my attention. No, no I don't. Maybe it's in the way that I drink the last of the pissed water from the old Englishes? His face cringed, imagining the taste. No. That's just disgusting. Dirty Canadian drinking dirty American beer. No, young blood. It's in the way you sleep. Look at you, he pointed to my covers. How do you mean, I asked. And why are you watching me while I'm sleeping? I always watch out for you when you sleep, he said, to make sure no one steals your stuff. Abdi was correct. I watched out for him, and he watched out for me. It's just what friends did in this place. No, Thistle, it's in the way you sleep. You've had your shoes stolen so many times, you sleep with them on. That's how I can tell you're a real streeter. You're just like me. See? 
Abdi then pulled up his blankets and exposed his grungy, mud-covered black boots. The smile on his face was priceless. Only real, real streeters sleep with their boots on. I looked around the shelter at the other guys to see their feet, to see if they too had their boots on in bed. Only about a, a third of us had them. You see those guys, Abdi said, pointing at the guys with their shoes off placed under their cots. They're little puppies. They aren't like us. They aren't real streeters. They're just down on their luck momentarily. One day, if they're at it long enough, they'll learn like we did. Never take your shoes off. Abdi was right. I never noticed that about myself. I had been homeless so long that I always went to bed, paranoid, with my shoes on. So many times in the past I had had my boots stolen while I slept in shelters that before every night I tied my shoes on with triple, even quadruple knots, just to give myself a chance of keeping thieves from stealing the shoes from right off my feet. And even then, sometimes they got them off. Having no shoes and being homeless was the worst. Oftentimes it would take a day or two to find a new pair that fit from the donation box. And that was if you were lucky. Other times you'd have to leave the shelter at 7 a.m. shoeless and wait at the chaplain's office at 8 a.m. in order to get a voucher to take up to the Sally Ann up the street where they might outfit you with a new pair. Other times you had to go for you had to go without for a few days or steal a new pair from the Zellers up the street and risk your freedom. When it happened in the wintertime, it was almost unbearable. Yeah, I guess I do sleep with my shoes on, eh, buddy? I laughed at the pitifulness of how normal it had become for me to go to sleep all laced up. When I first got sober at Harvest House, after my conversation with Abdi in the homeless shelter, I still wore my shoes to bed until one night a friend of mine noticed what I was doing. I used to do that, he said. I won't steal your shoes. I promise. You don't have to live like that anymore. He smiled and showed me his shoes beside his bed. See? I have mine right here. No one's going to take them here. We're good people. Apprehensively, I sat up, unlaced my shoes, placed them under the bed beside me, and went to sleep. It's been nearly 10 years since I took my shoes off that day in Harvest House Rehab. Sometimes, when I get really stressed, or afraid, or feel out of control, I still get an urge to go to bed with my shoes on. But when that urge comes, I fight it, and I'm always successful. And, despite the terrible reminder of my past, I feel happy, because it makes me think of that conversation in the shelter all those years ago. It makes me think of my old friend, Abdi, the King of Somalia. Thank you. than one, I didn't expect that. Anyway, most of you are completely lost. Krikak um, is a Haitian storytelling tool. It's a call and response, and it's a part of a rich tradition of storytelling in Haiti. So as a storyteller, it's my responsibility to keep you guys all entertained. Um, and it's especially important tonight because I'm talking about monetary theory. It's kind of boring. You may fall asleep, so you'll hear krik, and then you're going to say, that's right. So one more time. Creek. Right. So let me start the story now. Creek. Right. 
So this story starts in the house that I grew up in. See, my mother has an eye for beauty. She often says this was one of the greatest gifts her mother gave to her and her siblings. So it was that eye for beauty that spotted a big old house on Indian Road in Roncesvalles and said, that's the house that I'm going to make my family's home. Now, it took a little convincing for my father because he's a Mennonite. And if you know anything about Mennonites, they don't like to spend money. Um, so have you ever heard the one, what's the difference between a Mennonite and a canoe? Mennonites don't tip. Yeah. My dad would love that joke. Um, so fortunately, my dad's menno cheapness was no match for my mother's Haitian will. So they forked out the 135000 and bought a detached home in Roncesvalles. It was the 80s, I know, 135000 could you imagine? Baby boomers, so lucky! So anyways, on the Indians' road, life was good. I mean, on Indian Road, life was good. I grew up playing ball hockey with Max Akruski, and the kids in the neighborhood would run freely between each other's houses. Um, we'd even have these huge water fights uh, between the Indian Road kids and the Grenadier kids. Wait a minute. Holy smokes. I never realized how the street names were this allegory for the violence of settlers um, and native peoples on Turtle Island. So on Indian Road, we made the native's land our home and reaped the privilege and benefits of colonialism by reenacting battles between Grenadier settlers and native Indians by spilling subsidized water like blood on the streets. Cake. So I grew up in a lot of privilege, and my mother always reminded me that there were those who didn't have the same privilege that I had had. See, my mother was a translator, that's how she made her money, but at heart she was an organizer and a community activist. She helped undocumented Haitians navigate the legal system, she worked with Amnesty International, and she organized the establishment of a francophone women's housing cooperative. Didn't quite get off the ground, but they worked really hard at it. And through osmosis and also lively dinner conversations, I took on her passion for social justice and cultivated a fiery voice of my own. And I took every opportunity I could to demand that our society live up to its responsibilities to provide natural rights and the human rights to all. My father, on the other hand, was an economist. Now, I mean, he was a Mennonite, so it's not that bad. Um, but he did work at the heart of Toronto's financial district in Commerce Court. So that's the CIBC tower right at King and Bay. Do you guys know that big black one? And for me as a kid, that tower seemed magical. You know, as a kid, any chance I got, I loved to go out there. I would look all the way up, try and count all of the floors, and then I would love the speed of the elevators and the pop in my ears as we reached the 51st floor. You know, I just felt special and powerful in that cubicle. Creek. So my dad was okay with the social justice stuff. I mean, he is Mennonite, and social justice is part of Mennonite culture. But I still got the feeling that he didn't take me that seriously with my fiery social justice voice. Um, well, it was more than a feeling. See, he used to call my friends and I the Gang of Four. 
And if you don't know who the Gang of Four are, that's Mao and the other leaders of the Cultural Revolution in China. So, you know, clearly, you know, he didn't take me that seriously. Um, he did, however, ask me a question that would reemerge as a key to the, my passion for environmental and social justice. He asked me, Claire, do you even know how money works or where it comes from? Creek. As the years went by, I delved deeper into the world of radical leftist politics. I shouted and screamed at OCAP rallies on Bay Street. I even felt a twisted sense of pride knowing what the 51st floor of the evil empire looked like. And I hung out at an anarchist bookstore in Kensington Market called Uprising. Now, it was a space for Rastafari peoples and black-identified people of color. The building was at least 100 years old, and it was falling apart. It had old walk-in freezers from its previous life as a fish shop, and those freezers now became the most intimate spaces of uprising. They were home to drum circles, home to songs that connected us to our African ancestors, and it was a home of deep conversations and relationships that are the foundation of community. The freezer was also home to people. One of those people was Milton, and due to a lack of papers, he was not supposed to be in Canada, and the freezer actually was a pretty good home. He had his camp stove, a military prop, shelving, and even some artwork up on the walls. He's a brilliant researcher. He, was a, he is a brilliant researcher, and he taught me much of what I know today about geopolitics and global finance. And it was Milton who uttered the same words that my father had so many years before. He said to me, Claire, I wouldn't mean to live like this if we all just understood how money works and where it comes from. Creek. Finding the answer to this question became a kind of passion for me. I got a job in financial services, and eventually I climbed the ranks to become an associate investment advisor. I didn't just want to know more about money, I also wanted to help everyday people with their money. And somehow, I even found myself working in that same black tower that had gone from an awe-inspiring monolith to symbol of oppression to now the final destination of my daily commute. And on the evening commute back to, to Parkdale, I would sometimes run into Josh on the streetcar. And we'd gone to the same elementary school, so it was a friendly face on an otherwise sardine, tightly packed streetcar. He was working for a real estate development firm, but still high off his, the inspiration of grad school in New York City and working with community land trusts down there. We spent our streetcar rides talking about housing, Parkdale, and inevitably he asked me, so what are you doing on Bay Street? I told him, I guess I wanted to know more about money. What does that mean, he said. Well, I wanted to understand how money can cause so much pain and suffering. How in a world of constant growth, new technology, new innovations, more productivity, we still have so much poverty. I wanted to know how money could lead to so much suffering. And Josh said, okay, so what did you find out? And, I, and this is what I found out. I found out that 3% of the money in Canada is printed by the Bank of Canada. The other 97% is just an accounting entry by a bank which they put into someone's account as a loan. 
So that means that 97% of the money in circulation is debt. So I can pay off all of my debt, or Jesse could pay off all of his debt, but all of us together, if we paid off all our debt, we would wipe out the money supply. And what's worse is that the banks are charging interest on all of that debt. And you have to ask yourself, what gives them the right to make money out of nothing? To decide that another luxury condo deserves a loan, or a social or housing cooperative doesn't deserve that loan. To charge the rich 2% interest, and the poor 5, 10, 20% or more. Creek, pretty complex stuff, I know. I'm still trying to get my head around it. And I think there's some big economist that said, if anybody says they understand monetary theory, they're lying. So I guess the point of my story is to ask you to ask yourselves, what gives someone the right to make money out of nothing? Why is only 3% of the money supply provided by institutions that are responsible to the public and 97% institutions that are responsible to shareholders? So you guys are with me? Good. So two very important people in my life asked me the same question. How does money work and where does it come from? My friend Milton, a man who was forced to live in a freezer, and my father, a man working in one of the largest banks in Canada. Now I want to ask you all the same question and add one more. How can we all better understand where our money comes from and make it work for us and our needs? How can we make our money work to solve the housing crisis? Thank you. So last month, I was invited to a dinner by the Toronto Foundation to discuss housing. The purpose of this dinner was to bring people together from different walks of life to examine homelessness and housing insecurity from a variety of different perspectives. So to tell you just a bit about myself briefly, the focus of my academic and professional life over the past seven and a half years has been the study of finance and investment management, and I work for an investment management firm, as, as Michelle mentioned. So. When the Toronto Foundation asked me to dinner, I emailed them back and I said, please let me know if there are any reports or articles that would be valuable for me to review in advance. I'm keen to learn more and to provide some constructive input to this conversation. This is a quote from my email. Um, but this story isn't about me providing constructive input. It's not a story about the reports and articles that I reviewed in advance. It's a story about listening. It's a story about listening and really hearing the lived realities of the housing issue from an empathetic and not an economic standpoint. For me, this was a brand new experience. So it was the end of the workday on October 3rd. Bay Street was thickly lined with workers departing the financial district and making a beeline for Union Station. I walked up Queen Street to my, from my office on Bay Street to catch a cab. Although traffic can be pretty treacherous during this evening rush hour, I opted to take a taxi to dinner so that I could review my notes on housing issues facing Toronto. I sat in the back of the taxi and I opened my folder with an economic update on the housing issue that I had printed off at my office earlier that day. I scanned the document for key statistics. In the car, I highlighted a few figures. I highlighted that 80,000 Torontonians are on the wait list for public housing. 30,000 Torontonians use a shelter every night. I learned that if housing costs more than 30% of your income, it's considered to be unaffordable. 
I opened the GPS on my phone to see how close we were to the dinner destination. West Neighborhood House, it was called. Like I do before every meeting, I closed my folder a few blocks before I arrived, and I repeated the important data to myself in my head. I said, 80,000, 30,000, 30%. As soon as I hopped out of the taxi at the corner of Queen and Sororin, I knew I was out of my element. I was in a part of the city that was unfamiliar to me. A couple hurried by me. They were yelling at each other. I looked down. As I pressed the button and waited to cross the street, a group of young people walked almost directly into traffic while cars honked aggressively. As I waited for the light to change, my eyebrows furrowed and I clutched my bag close to my body and it was clear that my surroundings were making me stressed and uncomfortable. So this wasn't the expression that I wanted to wear as I walked into West Neighborhood House, so I changed my posture, I pushed back my shoulders and I softened my face, adopting a relaxed smile, hoping that my attitude would follow. I used my iPhone's GPS to navigate me literally right to the front door. The dinner was on the second floor, so I navigated a series of hallways and staircases to find the room for dinner. As I got closer, I could hear children playing down the corridor. I wondered if they lived here. When I walked into the room for dinner, a few small tables, maybe three, were pushed together to form one long banquet table. A plastic tablecloth and paper plates lay on the tablecloth, lay on the tabletops. There were maybe five people standing in the room, and I I recognized some of them from the research that I had done beforehand. Research, for me, is sort of like my armor. I feel more at ease when I have it uh, and, and more comfortable when I'm confident in it. It's a primary tool for me for social interaction. You can be at home everywhere if your mind is sitting in its research. So I put on the gregarious voice that I always use when I'm interacting with new company, loud, confident, assured, and in control. I recognized the housing policy analyst whose work I'd looked at before. I recognized the author whose most recent book I'd read cover to cover a few months back. I saw a few others in the room. When introduced, I recognized their names from the guest list that was provided to me beforehand, but I couldn't find anything about them online. No LinkedIn, there were no mentions in the Globe and Mail, no news wires, no Bloomberg biographies. What was I supposed to say to them? How were we supposed to interact if I didn't have these facts and figures that I used as a crutch? So very soon after we sat down, I realized that this wasn't going to be a conversation where I could rely on facts, data, learning, and my research to engage. This conversation was not going to follow my familiar process of gathering information and issuing an opinion. It was not going to be a conversation where I could listen for key data points and integrate them into my pre-existing framework. It was going to be about a conversation about circumstances that real people face and we were gonna be talking about lived experience and distressing reality. I instantly felt as though I'd signed up for a book club and I hadn't read the book. The armor of informational well-preparedness was irrelevant here, so I felt a pit in my stomach knowing that I was about to be confronted with more honesty than I was used to. It was gonna be my job to listen, to listen well, listen carefully, and most important, to listen with empathy. The first speaker told us about how she lived in a shelter for a while. She spoke clearly, but softly. She was now on the wait list for Toronto community housing. And I thought to myself, ah, the 30,000, something vaguely familiar. Although the narrative she was describing and her experience on the wait list, her effort to secure an address in Toronto community housing felt very different than what I had read in the economic reports earlier. It was the facts I was familiar with, but it was dressed up in an outfit that I didn't recognize at all. 
it, it wasn't informationally new, but it was emotionally new. She then said something that, that struck me really hard. She spoke about the bureaucratic difficulties she encountered just trying to get on the list to be eligible for Toronto community housing. And she said, I feel like they're trying to make it difficult so that you give up. And I thought, what does it feel like to give up on finding a home? That idea had never crossed my mind. Another speaker had recently immigrated to Canada. She spoke only Spanish and communicated with us through a translator. Her husband was recently deported, so it was just her and her two kids now. They were the little ones playing in the hallway. She told me about how she used to live in a women's shelter. Her translator relayed the message. The shelter wasn't a sustainable lifestyle. It wasn't a positive place to raise her two children. She explained how it was riddled with addiction and mental health issues. She's now on the wait list for Toronto community housing. She's having difficulty because she is not in an abusive relationship. And as a result, she was told that she was not a priority for relocation. I had to walk home from dinner, from Parkdale to my condo at King and Peter. I had a strange energy that I wasn't quite used to. I had a heavy heart for the experiences that I had heard about. And I realized that all these years after hearing about the housing crisis, I hadn't scratched the surface on understanding what that really means. There's a common expression that says that point really hit home. And I suppose the issue of housing was just never driven home for me. I had heard a lot about it, no doubt, but, but maybe I was never really listening. When I got home from dinner, my roommate was there. She had made popcorn, she was watching TV, and she had a couple candles burning. The house smelled warm and inviting. I kicked off my shoes, and I sat down on the couch with my roommate. We often share pretty generous sizes of stovetop popcorn with olive oil, Himalayan rock salt, and cracked pepper. My condo is the corner unit, so I can see all the way down King Street to the lake. We can see the bank towers above and streetcars below, and my whole life is laid out in the view from my couch. My commute, my office, my coffee shop, my lunch, my lunch spot, my grocery store. Every morning when I wake up, I can see all these pillars that together equal my home in Toronto. I can see it all from my couch and be assured that with one glance out the window, it's still there. I wondered where everyone else from the dinner went home to. I wondered if they called the roof over their heads their home. I wondered if it was warm, if there was food there. I wondered if there was anyone there to greet them, as my roommate had, to ask how their, their day was, what they learned, to hear about their triumphs and their setbacks. I didn't know this before, and, and I, really, I really didn't know. The numbers are just a reflection of the magnitude of these individual experiences. The housing crisis isn't a collection of data, but it's a collection of stories. So thanks for listening to this one. In 2008, my mom is living on lesbian separatist women's land, where she has been for the past 20 years. I do not know what you are picturing right now. Possibly you are thinking about women with crew cuts and quasi-military outfits, and they're just marching all morning, screaming about the patriarchy, or maybe not. Maybe you're thinking of a field of wildflowers and women are running in slow motion and their hair is blowing back and they're in silken dresses. 
Maybe there are no dresses. Maybe there's just kissing. I don't know because it's your imagination. The reality is there are six women who live on this land. They are young and fat. They are thin and old. They are scarred and smooth. Some of them look like fairy tale witches, and some of them look like fairy tale queens. But they all have laugh lines etched deep, like roadmaps of joys past. There is no plumbing. There is very little electricity and a variety of motley buildings that have been half turned into houses. There's a chicken coop, there's a goat barn, there are no goats, there are no chickens. There is a working teepee, that's where my mom lives. There's even one of those silver Airstream trailers which is not hip or cool, it's just been there since the 60s. And this is where my mom is living in 2008. Now, she is meant to come and visit us, but she isn't feeling well, so she doesn't. And at this point, I am living right on the edge of Dufferin Grove Park. And when I say the edge, I mean here is my front door, and there is Dufferin Grove Park. And this is the summer that a woman moves into my yard. The first time I ever see her, I'm walking through Dufferin Grove Park, and she is sitting under a maple tree ringed with cardboard boxes. She is looking up at the sun and smoking, and I think of my mom, and I smile. Two days later, she signs a lease on a more residential, more secluded tree, the tree just outside my kitchen window. So now, as I do the dishes, I am listening to her hacking smoker's cough, and I am smelling her Dumarier cigarette smoke as it drifts into my house. I wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning to pee, and I look outside, and she's also peeing. We're like, we are peeing buddies. And her white ass is so luminous. It's like the moon has come out. And I keep waiting for somebody to tell her to go away, but nobody ever does. So I do a terrible thing, and I know that it's terrible because she is a human being, not a cat, but I give her a name because she is all I can talk about. Oh, my God. Beatrice is smoking. Like, do you know how much cigarettes cost in Toronto? She could have a Yorkville condo for what cigarettes cost in Toronto. Oh my God, Beatrice has an electric teapot. Where is she plugging it in? Beatrice has a cell phone. Who is she calling? I have to know. And my friend is like, why are you telling me about this? And I'm like, there is a woman living in my yard. Like, what else is happening? Nothing. This is the most fascinating thing that's ever happened to me. Every morning, Beatrice sits at the table. She pours steaming hot water into her teapot, her, her teacup. And for a moment, the scene is so much like any morning on the land where my mom lives, 
six women trailing down to the table to drink coffee, to bicker gently, to laugh belly laughs at the absurdities of the world. Beatrice sits alone and drinks her tea. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe she is not lonely at all. And I keep waiting for somebody to tell her to go away, but nobody ever does. As leaves begin to carpet the park, her pile of belongings grows. Oh my god, Beatrice has an air mattress. Until one day, she comes home with a tent, an actual tent. And she stands there with the canvas in one hand and the poles in the other. And then she throws them on the ground and scowls at them and smokes furiously. And far away, smoke and laughter drift out of a crooked stovepipe. And my mom gets sicker. By the third day, the tent is up. And it crouches in the corner of the park like a cautious mouse. And I look for her now, her flashlight hitting the walls of the tent, two o'clock in the morning. Hey, Beatrice. Yeah, I couldn't sleep either. My mom is going to be fine now. The first snowfall comes. Three women come marching into the park, wearing Prada, pushing peg perego strollers, and they see the tent, and they collectively lose their minds. Three hands go into three coach handbags, and they are all screaming into the phone, no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, do I live in Toronto, or do I live in a third world country? And within two hours, there is a Parks and Rec man who is pasting an eviction notice on the side of the tent. Beatrice comes home from wherever it is she goes during the day, and she stands there and she reads the eviction notice, and her shoulders are straight and strong. And I don't know it yet, but my mom is in the kind of pain that would send a Marine sergeant to his knees. In the morning, no less than six enormous men stand around the tent and watch as Beatrice empties enough food to last the winter. And I don't know it yet, but my mom is saying goodbye to the trees, to the wind, to the sun. I stand there at the kitchen window and I feel so helpless. So I run around the house and I get all the cash I can find and I run outside and I've never stood that close to her. And up close, I can see her laugh lines etched deep. Up close, her eyes are so kind and I say, we never minded you being here. And she says, honey, I know that. And I don't know it yet. Not yet. 
but missing my mom is going to feel like trying to swallow broken glass every time I tune in. The last time I saw Beatrice, she was sitting in front of a strip mall. She had a hat in front of her with two pennies inside, and her face was cold and hard. But the last time I saw my mom was a week ago. He was walking past my son's room, and he had a book of my mom's stories and songs open on his bed, and he had his guitar out, and he was singing her songs. And there she was, in his hands, in his eyes, and in his voice. Thank you very much. Subscribe to the Stories We Don't Tell podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, leave us a review on iTunes. For more information about the podcast, blog, and live events, find us on Facebook or visit storieswedonttell.org. This episode of the Stories We Don't Tell podcast is brought to you by an actual thing, namely all our wonderful partners for this event. Thanks so much.